You can open to Luke chapter 15. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible there. I think it will help you um, if you're following along there in your own copy of uh, the Bible. Thomas Watson, the, the English Puritan, said of his ministry, there are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. It is hard, Watson is saying, to help the ungodly truly grieve over their sin. Of course, we know ultimately that's God's work, not ours. But he's saying it is also hard to help the godly to move past only seeing their own sin and to actually find joy in the glory of their salvation. And you know, the reality is that we actually need to feel both. We need to feel the bitterness of our own sin and also the joy of our salvation. These are, these are somewhat inseparable. You will not know the joy of salvation unless you know the bitterness of sin and the terrible state that it had left us in. We, we need to understand what sin had done to us in order to rejoice in our salvation. Or we could quote Watson once more when he said, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So I think our passage this morning helps us to see both of those realities and both of those truths. It helps us then to rejoice. That's the goal this morning, that we would be truly sorrowful over sin in order that we might truly rejoice in our salvation. We want to rejoice with God who rejoices in the salvation of the ungodly, the salvation of sinners. We're looking at a couple of parables this morning that are probably quite familiar to you. And so we launch into our text this morning with a sense of fear and trepidation, knowing that sometimes familiarity eases you know, our ability to feel the glory of a passage. So let's turn our attention to the Word and trust the Spirit to do His work in our hearts. These Parables that we know so well, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, they're actually a response to an accusation that Jesus receives. And that's our first point this morning. There in verses 1 and 2, the accusation. This man receives sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and Eats with them. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus had said, You know, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And chapter 15 opens with, with what, to the Pharisees at least, would be a surprising audience that has come to hear Jesus. It's not the religious elite, it is the, the tax collectors. You know, in chapter 3 and in other places in Luke we've seen what these tax collectors are what they represent we saw uh, really the nature of their sin in a sense when they came to John the Baptist and Baptist and they said what must we do to to do deeds in keeping with repentance and John said well quit overcharging people for their taxes only charge what is due so we, we see that these tax collectors were known for defrauding, known for stealing. 
You know, we saw that they had a, they had a certain quota that they had to meet to pay the Roman government, and, the, and then they could charge sort of above and beyond whatever they thought they could shake you down for. So the tax collector was a robber. He was a thief. They used their position to abuse and to steal. And these were, these were Israelites who had, in a sense, sold out to Rome. They're abusing their fellow Israelites to pad their own pockets. They were numbered in the eyes of, of this society with the sinners and the prostitutes. A, a, a tax collector couldn't testify in court because tax collectors are liars. This is who is surrounding Jesus, tax collectors, and who else is there? Sinners. This is a more generic term just for those who have broken God's law. They are unclean. Some may have even abandoned Jewish life, lifestyle and embraced the Gentile occupiers like the tax collectors have done. And this isn't a, a small group of, of sinners that is around Jesus. In fact, I think the NASB does a good job here of saying all the tax collectors and sinners. These are the types of people that are, that are gathering around Jesus. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a, an exaggeration to say all of them, but it's an exaggeration to make the point. And the, and the point is clear that Jesus is surrounded by those that have been pushed because of their sinful lifestyles to the margins of society. They have failed to keep the demands of the law. These aren't just folks that the Pharisees thinks have really botched up their life. These are folks like you and I who have truly failed to live a life pleasing to God, truly failed to walk in righteousness. And so the self-deceived Pharisees are disgusted as they look on, as they see this crowd of thieves and robbers and sinners who are surrounding Jesus. They can't believe that He wouldn't keep better company. And so they grumble there in verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. In the original language, it sort of front loads that word sinners as if to highlight it, say, this man, sinners, he eats with them. He eats with those type of people. This is a, a, a not so veiled accusation against Jesus. Much like was made in Luke chapter 7, and if this man was God, he would know what type of people are around him. He would know that this woman is a sinner. He would know that these people are sinful. So the veiled accusation is this. Jesus is not righteous because he does not keep a boundary between him and the unrighteous. Jesus is not righteous because if he was, he would keep himself from these type of people. And so it brings up the question, has Jesus lessened the standard? Is he, is he in defiance to Psalm 1? Is he running with those? Is he, is he walking in the counsel of the wicked? You know, Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Has Jesus sort of set that standard aside? Decided to settle just so that he might have some friends. I mean, he is sharing, he is sharing a meal with these sinners. If you remember in our context, Jesus has been warning the Pharisees and the scribes that, that you need to repent or, or else you're going to miss out on the feast 
in the kingdom. You're going to look on with wailing and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they're not dining with you, Pharisee. They're dining with those who have come from, from north and south and east and west. He's been warning them that despite their attempts to strictly adhere to the law, despite their willingness to even add rules to the law, despite the way they are talked about by others and and even honored among men, they will not enjoy this meal. Yet who, when when Jesus has come and He's on this earth and He's he's preaching that the kingdom of God is in your midst, He's sharing a meal with, with whom? The sinners and the tax collectors. So Jesus lessened his standard? Obviously not. This may be a surprising audience to the Pharisees, but it's not surprising to those of us who have been walking through the Gospel of Luke. Sinners and tax collectors have been found around Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. He's some of the very disciples that he called were tax collectors. These are folks who have a sense that Jesus has come with with a word that they need to hear, a message of hope that they might glean from, and they have drawn near to Him in our text. uh, In our passage, the text says, in order that they might hear from Jesus. You know, that's good news for us, that Jesus receives sinners and tax collectors, because Jesus hasn't disregarded the standard. He isn't just hanging around. He isn't walking in the course of the sinner and the tax collector. He has come on a mission to actually rescue from those sins which characterized this crowd. He has come with a message of hope for the hopeless, a message of grace for those who have blown it, a message of forgiveness for those who see their sin as the biggest problem that they face, the, the, the one thing they cannot overcome in and of themselves. Yes, Jesus receives sinners, but He does it through pardon. He does it through justifying grace. He does it through cleansing. And He does it through making sinners and tax collectors worthy to sit at the banquet through His own righteousness as a gift to those who would come to hear Him and to turn from their sin, as our, as our parables point out, who repent of their sin. He has come for this purpose, to seek and to save the lost. See, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because they miss the, the plan of God for salvation. Like Israel in the wilderness who, who literally experienced the delivering hand of the Lord, walked through the, the parted Red Sea, and they began to grumble after, after seeing the deliverance of God. These Israelites, they look on, they see the Son of Man who has come to bring deliverance, and like those in the wilderness, they grumble. They grumble and they complain because they've missed what God is up to in sending Jesus. They've missed the whole point of why He's receiving sinners and sharing a meal with them. And so it's in light of this accusation that Jesus sets out to teach. And He teaches by by means of three different parables. Uh, Really, chapter 15 is a coherent unit. But you know what? I, I figured if we slowed down in the really hard passages in Luke, if we stopped and said, well, what does it mean that you have to hate your brother and your, your sister and your mom and your dad? And if we slowed down when we said, take up your cross and follow me, and, well, we might as well slow down a bit and 
get some comfort here from Luke chapter 15. So I hope for us this morning to feel the joy of, of those words that Jesus receives sinners. That Jesus receives sinners. But in order for us to, again, find joy in those words, we need to first see ourselves as those who were lost or those who were unworthy to be received by Jesus. And I think these parables, again, they help us to see these truths. That, that brings us to point number two this morning, the mission. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That word so in verse three, that, that's why I'm sort of tying the, the, the parables to the accusation. Let's us know he receives the accusation, so he told them. Who's them? That's the Pharisees and the scribes. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Also look there in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So there's two parables, they work together, we're going to take them together, they're making the same point, and they both begin with, with something that is, that is lost, a sheep that is lost at the end of the day, and a coin that's lost in, in a dark and dusty home. So as we think about that word, lost, you have a, you have a, a, a shepherd in the first parable, who would typically come to the end of the day and he would count the sheep at the end of the day, making sure that he had the full number of sheep. And the, the, the shepherd in this story comes up one short. There's a sheep that is lost. In verse 8, we, we read about a woman who has ten coins. She drops one and can't easily find it. It is lost. That word lost, you may have picked up on it when Gary was reading this. It's, it's repetitive in this, in this passage. As we read through the, the rest of the chapter, that word lost or loses or it's translated perish one time, it shows up eight times in chapter 15. Lost, 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 loses, perish, lost, lost. It, it continually shows up in our text, alerting us to the fact that this is going to be an important theme in our text. You know, given the context here that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, uh, but he's, he's speaking of the sinners and tax collectors, we can assume then that Jesus is picturing with his lostness the state of all people, at least all those before coming to Christ. We can think about and consider the words of, of Paul in Romans chapter 3 that bring everybody under this condemnation of sin. Paul says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one. Not even one. It's no one, no one, no one. All have turned aside. No one, no one. I mean, it's just... It's so evident and clear that every person is born under this condemnation. 
Every person alienated from God due to sin, dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God because of His holiness. And, you know, we gladly walked in this course. Just because you know, we say we're born in this doesn't mean we were helpless victims. We were gladly walking the course of this world. We're glad to indulge the desires of the flesh, willing participants in the enslaving power of sin. Or we might put it in the language more reflective of our parable. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We chose our own path, willfully and stubbornly fleeing the presence and protection and care and love of our shepherd. We're like a sheep that's lost. We were like a coin discarded in the dark. Lost, helpless to do anything about our own condition. I like the way our statement of faith puts it. Speaking of helplessness, man has no recuperative powers. No recuperative powers that enable him to recover himself. And thus, he is hopelessly lost. Like a coin under the couch. We can't cry out and alert somebody to where we are. We're helpless. Several years ago, Liz and I were lost. We were on our way to this staff retreat with our church, fellow church staff there, and we were going down to Branson, Missouri. And, you know, we'd been misled initially by the directions that were given to us, but I was pretty sure I knew where I was going. I knew we were looking for Silverado Road. And every Every road in this little subdivision, it's the, the road started with silver. It'd be like silver leaf. And every, word, every road, it would be lowercase silver, uppercase, whatever the next word is. Leaf, capital L-E-A-F, you know, silver tree, capital tree. So we're driving around. This is becoming a source of friction that I'm so confident of where I, where I know I'm at and I see what I think is Silverado, and I flip around, I shine my headlights on the street sign, it says silver, lowercase, there appears to be a little bit of a space, capital A, capital D, capital O. And in my frustration, I say, that's not Silverado, that's silver ado. <laughs> I was too stubborn to admit that I was lost, and that being the case, I was too blind even to see the most obvious sign in front of me. I couldn't rejoice because I wasn't even willing to admit that I didn't know where I was going. And the truth is, that's what we were spiritually. That we need to reckon, we need to reckon with our lostness. That's why Jesus has been calling for humility. To be willing, unlike a man who's lost, be willing to admit our lost state. So that we can truly Rejoice in the fact that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This, this condition, this status of lost, it leads to what? It leads to a diligent search. The shepherd could have said, hey, I got 99 out of 100. That's not bad. The lady could have said, I still have 90% of my money. I'm just going to take that and stow it away so I don't lose any more. You know, what, what do you do when you lose something, but it's not that big of a deal to you? You say, it'll turn up. It, it'll turn up at some point, but, 
But what do you do if you're missing something that really matters? If you're, if you're missing a child in the mall or you're missing your wallet, what, what do you do? You diligently search for that thing or that person. And so which of these then characterizes God in this text? Does he say, ah, they'll turn up? No. Look at the end of verse 4 there. What, men of, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? How long? How long do you go after this thing until he finds it? Or look in verse 8. How is this lady looking? She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she seeks diligently until the coin is found. This is a, a diligent, it is a persistent, and in the end, it is an effective search. What is lost is indeed found. You probably notice that in each of these parables, you're introduced to a main character in the very beginning. In verse 4, what man of you... So we have a man, or verse 8, what woman? In verse 11, we'll see next week, we've got, a, we've got a dad with two sons. And so what's going on in these parables? Why these main characters? The point of the parables is not to say that God is, is a shepherd, although we could talk about Christ being a shepherd. But these are parables, remember? It's not to say that God is a, a woman, right? And it's not to say that God is a father, although God is Father, but, but what's going on in, in this specific instance, in these specific texts? What is Jesus trying to teach us? He's comparing the attitudes and actions of a shepherd, of a woman, and of a father to the attitudes and actions of God. In other words, if a shepherd does this, or if a woman does this, or if a father does this, and has this sort of attitude, and searches this diligently, and has this level of compassion, if, if this person does this, how much more does God then display these attitudes and actions? And one of the things we see in God is His willingness to go to extreme lengths to rescue that which is lost. These parables really illustrate for us what is made explicit in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So what extreme lengths has God gone through? Well, one of the things that wouldn't be far from the mind of those who are hearing these parables is the danger of a shepherd who puts all the sheep away at night and then realizes one is missing and has to go find the lost sheep. There are dangers of predators, dangers of robbers, dangers of the terrain. The shepherd would have been putting his life on the line by going after the one. We know that the diligent search by God through Jesus of the lost would actually require the life of the shepherd, would require the life of Christ. Jesus has come down into this world to save. And he moves intentionally. We see it really, really clearly in Luke. He moves intentionally towards the cross and does not rest. He does not sit down until he has made atonement for sin, bringing righteousness as a free gift to those who turn from their sin and turn to him. 
You see, Jesus, he's come to rescue. He's more than just a friend to the sinner. He is that, but he's more than that. He's a gentle Savior who gave up his life to accomplish his mission. We see his gentleness even in the way that when the shepherd finds the sheep, what does he do? He picks it up and he puts it on his own shoulders and he carries it home. He's a gentle Savior. He's the kind of Savior that finds the lost. He seeks them. He sacrifices for them. He picks them up in the muck and the mire of this world and carries them on his shoulders till he's home. One thing that Jesus often does in, in his parables, and he does likes to do this with the Pharisees, is he, he sort of puts, puts the person in the predicament that the parable sort of develops. So he begins by asking the Pharisees, Who, which of you would not do this? Which of you would not do this? He's trying to put them in the predicament to, to where they would say, oh yeah, I would do that. I would go find the lost sheep. I would search until the sheep is found. But if these Pharisees really understood what Jesus is driving at, if they understood the intention behind the parable, they would understand that actually they haven't done that. They haven't done what Christ is saying, assuming any person would do. By their very grumbling, they're demonstrating that they don't care about the lost sheep of Israel, that they don't care about those who have gone astray. They're demonstrating that they're like the bad shepherds that, that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 34, who they, they serve themselves, they don't go after the sheep, they, they fatten themselves up instead of serving and caring and going after those who are lost. So what did God say in Ezekiel 34? He said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. God says, I will, I will be their shepherd. And in Jesus Christ, we have the Son of God, the Son of Man who has come to be the chief shepherd. The one who laid down his life, the good, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's the sinners that are there. It's the tax collectors. In other words, you could say it's the humble, it's those who recognize their need, who saw in Christ one who had come to rescue, one who had come to seek and to save the lost, to bring back the strayed, to bind up the wounded, to throw on his shoulders and to carry home and to strengthen the weak. They came to him with no pretense of their own righteousness. They had no righteousness to cling to. They understood their lack of righteousness and they've come to hear from the Savior. There's another similarity between these two parables then that we must see, and that's, that's the result of the successful search. You not only see uh, you know, that something is lost and something is found, highlighting Jesus' min, uh, mission, ministry. I'll just put those two together and make some new word myself. Not only see his mission to seek and to save the lost, but third, we see the response. God rejoices in the salvation of the lost. As we've seen, even in the Gospels, as we've walked through, a lot of these, these big moments in life were sort of corporate 
events. We've seen funerals where the whole community has come out to grieve together. And so the opposite is true, and we see that in these parables, that you know, just as loss was mourned communally or corporately, so the joy of something being lost and then found is shared together. It's shared in community. You see it in both the shepherd and you see it in this woman in our story. Look there in verse 6. And when he comes home, what does he do? He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Again in verse 9, when the lady finds the coin, what does she do? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The joy in recovering the lost sheep or recovering the lost coin is one of those things that goes so deep that the shepherd and the woman, they can't keep themselves from from gathering people together and say, this joy is too big, I need you to rejoice with me. Surely you've had moments like that where something happened to you or something happened for you and your first thought is, who can I tell? I need to call my wife. Or if you're, you're single, I need to call my best friend or... I need to call my, my mom or my dad. I need to tell somebody about this thing that has happened to me. And that's sort of joy that's pictured in these parables. The shepherd's not content just to go home and say, well, that was cool. He's rejoicing, and this, this joy spreads to the whole community. Remember the logic of the parable. What we're saying is happening with these main characters. If a, if a shepherd finds a sheep, and he calls the whole town together to rejoice. And if a woman finds a coin, you know, it it's, would be like one's day worth of wages. You know, with minimum wage today, that's probably like four or five hundred bucks. No, I'm just kidding. But if that little coin produces this much joy, how much more does God and the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents? In fact, God make, or yeah, Jesus, who is God, makes this explicitly clear in verse 7 and in verse 10. He sort of applies the parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, look there in verse 10. Again, Jesus applies the parable just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's interesting, before we get to the content of, of the, the idea of one sinner, it's interesting, though, that, that, again, this is Jesus speaking here authoritatively. How does, how does Jesus know what brings joy in heaven? Because well, he came from there. Right, so this is, this is a, again, a passage packed with Christology. He's speaking with the authority of the Son of Man. But notice what he says. There's, there's much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus cares about the one. God rejoices over the one. One sheep out of 99 in one parable. One coin out of 10 Yet that one was reason to rejoice. Heaven rejoices one at a time, you could say. You know, 
I wonder if you or I can allow these, these thoughts of God to sort of sneak in that He is one who is sort of reluctantly saved. That He just sort of reluctantly saved you or I. In reality, there's sort of a, a, a reverse pride associated with this idea of saying, well, God could never love someone like me. He must have just turned a blind eye when I came into the kingdom. I think Dane Orland gives a helpful illustration of that book, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you have read that, but he says, imagine a missionary who, a medical missionary who's going to the jungles in Haiti and on the way in, he's driving past village after village and seeing people with curable diseases and curable maladies. And he gets to the point where he is going to set up his clinic. Do, Do you know what would bring the missionary the most joy? It would be those with the malady coming for a cure. That would bring the missionary joy because that's the purpose for which he came. He wouldn't look on and say, oh, great. Here comes those people who are diseased and paralyzed. In the same way, God delights in saving sinners. And he rejoiced when he saved you. He didn't think to himself, oh, great. Here comes Roy or Angie or Gene, or Dan, haven't erupted when you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, and God saved you from the consequences of your sin. So if it's not humble for me to say, God could never love someone like me, how should I think about humility? J.C. Rowell says this, if we take comfort in our own love to Christ, We are building on a sandy foundation. But if we lean on Christ's love to us, we're on a rock. So instead of highlighting our own value, our own great love for God, instead we look to Christ and see His great love for us. We can look to the cross and be confident in God's love. He demonstrated His love there for His people. Out of love, He came and rescued you. Out of love, He opened your eyes to see your lost state. Out of love, He granted you repentance and faith. And out of love, He justifies you and keeps you secure. You know, it may sound humble. God could never love someone like me, but what we're actually saying is God only loves the lovable we think we're throwing ourselves under the bus when in our reality we're, we're demeaning God's sort of love. He loves the unlovable. And it's this spirit-given recognition, recognition of the fact that we were unlovable, we were lost. The Spirit gives us that recognition, gives us the ability to turn from our sins and to trust in Him, and then there's an outbreak of joy in heaven. That recognition of your lost state is actually what differentiates the Pharisees from those who are found. Notice again Jesus' words in verse 7. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It seems given... The audience is the Pharisees. That Jesus has been trying to undermine their own self-righteousness. 
that he is, he's actually using that word ironically, the, the ones who need no repentance. It isn't that the Pharisees don't need repentance, it's that they don't recognize that they need repentance, and so they then never turn to the Lord. It's the same point Jesus made in Luke 5 when he said, I've come to seek and to save, or, or no, it's, it's, the, it's not the well who need a physician, it's the sick. Well, was he patting the Pharisees on the back saying, you don't need a doctor, you're good. It's not what, well, I mean, when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees, he called them a brood of vipers. It's not that they don't need repentance, it's that they don't know that they need repentance, so they will never then repent. Jesus does the same thing with Simon in Luke chapter 7 when he says this woman loves me because she recognizes that she's been forgiven of her great, great sin. Simon, you don't see it. You don't see it, so you don't love me. The so-called righteousness of the Pharisees was a self-justifying righteousness. That's what Luke said when somebody wants to wiggle out of the command of God to love your neighbor, seeking to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? The Pharisees actually needed to do what the sinners and the tax collectors needed to do, which was admit their lostness, admit their need for Christ and to turn to Him. But for you this morning, if you've come to Christ, you you are the lost sheep that has been found. You are the lost coin located in the dark and have been brought back into the light. I was not planning on telling the story, but I was at a camp one time, and, you know, it's, it's hard to find good camp speakers, and this guy, I'd heard him before, and he did pretty well, but somebody must have made him mad in the last year, because he came back, and he, it's like he hated the church. It's like he hated the church, and, and he took this parable, and he said, you, he's, I think somebody got a hold of him before the church said, we got a, in our group, we got a bunch of self-righteous kids, and they don't care about the unbeliever. And so he took this parable and he said, you know what? God, the, God loves you less than the unbeliever. He leaves you to go to the unbeliever. And I thought, so, so we go back to our breakout room, which is my chance to then fix what was said. <laughs> What's funny, I didn't even have to teach the text. I just asked the kids questions. These are kids. Who's Jesus speaking to? Pharisees. What's, well, okay, what do we know about the Pharisees? They're self-righteous. So is, is Jesus saying that they don't, they don't need repentance? No. What's he saying? He's saying that they don't know they need to repent, so they're never going to repent. So, so guess what, youth group, or guess what, Southern Hills Bible Church? You're the sheep. You're the sheep that's been found. You're the lost coin. You can delight in your salvation. You can enter into the delight that God feels when He saves sinners from their sins and applied it to you through the Holy Spirit. Certainly, we aren't above rejoicing in the things that bring God the Father and the angels in heaven great joy. It's interesting to me that that the Pharisees were reminded of their sin by, by these, or excuse me, the tax collectors and the sinners are reminded of their sin by these Pharisees. And Jesus tells a parable to come to their defense and say, no, I've come to rescue them. I've come to save them. I've come to bring them out of darkness into light. I've come to heal them from the disease which is sin. So we should be 
driven then to delight in that which brings God to God delight. Another application, we should not only be driven by this text to rejoice in our own salvation, but to imitate the compassion, the heart of our Savior, looking for the lost and rejoicing when they are found. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable to justify the fact that he is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And he's pointing out that the Pharisees lack the heart that God has. They don't have the same heart. They lack the joy of heaven when sinners are rescued, when sinners repent. And so our our hope this morning is that God would grant us compassionate hearts. That first and foremost, we would think about people that we have in our families or in our schools or in our work or in our communities, that we would view them as they are in relation to God first. And that we would move towards them with the hope of the gospel. By God's grace, I hope our first impulse, even sin is disgusting and it destroys and it's harmful, but our first impulse would be they're lost. They're lost. Not they're disgusting, but they're lost. They're lost. We need to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus has already warned us how quickly this might arise in our own hearts, knowing that we might be living consistent more with self-righteousness than the fact that we were lost and now we've been found. By the end of the two parables here, Jesus has so undermined the Pharisees by pointing out that they lack the character that God has. And he's highlighted the character of God through these parables. That he has made it crystal clear that he's not hanging out with sinners and tax collectors based on some flaw in his personality. His hanging around sinners and tax collectors is, is representative of his very mission and purpose for which he has come. I was invited once to address a, a, a group of people that were gathered. It's a ministry called Grief Share, people who are suffering loss. They can come together and grieve and By and large, they would receive biblical counsel there, and they'd receive comfort as they sort of walk through this grieving process. And you know, sometimes when I'm when I'm preaching to to a group, I've wondered in my mind, okay, is this sort of just is this landing at all? Like how many here I'm preaching the gospel, but how many are just hearing religious sort of jargon and you know, they could hear any number of messages and think they're, they're all the exact same. Are they hearing anything significant to them? Well, as this Grief Share meeting w- was going and I was preaching the gospel, there was one lady there that was hearing loud and clear that you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And she's, she's hearing this message and she is absolutely furious. And as I'm preaching the gospel, she looks at me and she says, that's not fair. That's not fair. She pushes back and says, you're, you're saying that if a murderer turns to Jesus on his deathbed, he gets to go to heaven, and, and, and this person who is moral and nice doesn't? Just how, they, how he is in relation to, to Jesus? She heard that Jesus receives sinners, and she was beside herself. 
And in her anger, she actually captured the gospel pretty well. A murderer can turn to Jesus on his deathbed and receive grace and mercy. He can be found on his, even on his deathbed. And like the Pharisees here, what was meant to be an attack on the gospel actually highlighted the beauty and glory of Christ. She's not unlike the Pharisees here. They're grumbling. They're grumbling about Jesus, and amazingly, they grumbled the gospel. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. The Pharisees thought it was an attack, but those are the most hope-filled words that we can hear this morning. And to that we say, praise God, or we would have no hope. The very thing that repels the Pharisees from Jesus is actually the very thing that draws the humble to Him. It is the reason we sang the songs we sang this morning. It is reason to rejoice. It is the reason heaven erupts in joy once one sinner repents. So for us this morning, we might say, join the heavenly chorus and rejoice in the God of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, may we avoid what Peter warns, that we might become blind to the hope of the gospel and we might become unfruitful and ineffective. Lord, keep us from that. May we glory in the fact that we were lost. There's nothing in us. We had no recuperative powers in and of ourselves, yet Christ came, made a way, drew us, saved us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.